Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. And I've got so many cool things to talk about today. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Links are in the show notes below. Patrons get access to exclusive video content, previews of all kinds of things that I'm putting together, exclusive adventures, all different kinds of tools to help dungeon masters. You can get access to that through patron, through the Sly Flourish Patreon, but also most importantly, you help support shows like this. So thank you all very much to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Oh, I've got a great big list of stuff today and I'm very excited to talk about it all. So the first thing uh, I'd like to mention is that uh, there is now a pre-order page for the Lazy DMs Companion. Last month, I ran a Kickstarter for my new book, The Lazy DMs Companion. I'm working on it now. I'm really, really excited about it. And I got a lot of notes from people that said, oh man, I missed it. So there, if you missed the Kickstarter, there is a way for you to still get involved. And that is by going to the, the pre-order page. And the link is in the notes below if you are interested in pre-ordering the Lazy DMs Companion, which also includes pre-ordering the physical, the new offset print versions of the Lazy, De the Lazy DMs workbook and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So, and then all kinds of other stuff that you can pre-order as well. A lot of PDF products that you can pre-order. You don't have to pre-order. You can order them and they will, they'll come as soon as we lock the orders down. So that's really exciting. Yesterday, so during the Kickstarter, I ran a couple of videos in which I used the tables from the Lazy DMs Companion to build an adventure. They're called Let's Make an Adventure. And I built an adventure called the Dungeon of Shadows. And I built this adventure for my wife. It was her birthday yesterday. And I wanted to run a D&D game that, that focused on themes that she liked. And so I used the tables from the Companion to build this adventure. And yesterday I actually got to run it. And it ran very well. It was a relatively short adventure, about two and a half hours. We got through a lot. I ran only a couple of battles and they were pretty easy. Third level characters. And I, and I think everybody had a really good time. I enjoyed running it. They enjoyed playing it. The, the NPCs were a lot of fun. Exploring the, de the dungeon was really interesting. So that, that worked out really well. And my plan now, I talked to Scott Gray about this yesterday. We're going to have a stealth stretch goal for the campaign. I'm pretty sure. And that, that stealth stretch goal is going to be a two-page adventure outline for the Dungeons and Shadows, Dungeon of Shadows, included in the back of the book. So when you get the Lazy DM's Companion, you'll have all the stuff there. And at the very end, you will be able to you'll be able to see what it looks like to take those tables and turn it into a an adventure, right? at least an adventure outline. It's not going to be a fully fleshed out, totally ready to go adventure because it is only two pages, but it'll have enough material on there that a DM could take it, fill in the blanks and be able to run an adventure based on this idea of the Dungeon of Shadows. So I'm very excited about that. I'm going to write it tomorrow and then we're going to, I already have a lot of the notes for it because it's all in Notion, but I'm going to turn it into something that we can put in the back of the book. So it looks like we had a couple extra pages in the back of the book uh, when we're li lining up all of the pages. And I said, I really want to put something useful in there and and my wife actually brought up why don't you put in an adventure and i was like that's great and i'm like why don't i put in the adventure i'm running for you i said that's great so it's gonna be very cool uh, i'm very excited i'm very excited for that i think it's gonna be really really useful so Fizbin's Treasury of Dragons, the latest Wizards of the Coast source book, came out two weeks ago, and I finally got a copy, physical copy, and sat down. I didn't do like a super deep dive on it, but I gave it a good solid skim read, and I, and I dove into various parts of it. And my overall thoughts, not, not you know... I don't know why my opinion matters any more than anybody else, right? We're all good, you know, good DMs will, will know what they like and, and know what they don't. But I, overall, I think it's really good. I like it. Is it as good as Van Richten's guide? I think Van Richten's guide is probably a little bit better, but I really loved a lot of the stuff that they did in Van Richten's guide. And I really enjoy 
that I think a lot of the good stuff that made Van Richten's Guide really good and usable, I think we can find in Treasury of Dragons. I really, really dig it. Uh, I love the Draconic Lair. I got a list of things that I like. I really dig, right? I really like the Draconic Lairs. I want to talk a little bit about the lore. The, the treasure tables, I think, are really cool. Uh, new, kind of new Draconic treasure tables. And they have this thing, they have this, this what, I'm, what I'm referring to is like a wide use of templates. So instead of fixating on very detailed things they're offering you a template that you can use that you can wrap around lots of different things and i'll give a couple of examples they have these things called horde magic items and a horde magic item is essentially a magic item that grows in power as it absorbs energy from a treasure horde of a dragon the bigger the dragon the bigger the dragon's horde the higher the upgrade of the of the item and you can think of this like an item that grows in power there's lots of different ones in fact we're going to talk about that during our spotlight today items that grow in power but this one grows as you sort of as you sort of steep it in the treasure of a dragon, which I think is a really interesting way. It's something different than just going up with levels as you go up in levels. It's it's specific. Like this would this would fit very well like a dragon hunter's campaign. Like as you're hunting down bigger dragons, you can upgrade your item. You can you can steep this thing in. But the, on, when it comes to templates, they have these like dragon wraths weapon, and it's any kind of weapon. Right. And it has different powers when it's slumbering, stirring, wakened or or ascendant. Right. And those are sort of the different dragon levels. You can think of them like a tier. The, the slumbering is tier one. Stirring is tier two. Wakened is, is tier three. Ascendant is tier four. Right. And it makes sense because it's about the same size as the dragon. And then so they have dragon wrath weapon. Dragon touched focus, any kind of focus, any kind of wandering item, attunement by a spellcaster. Think about how many spellcasters are there? Tons, right? And it has different powers. And then you have uh, dragon vessel, right? Which is sort of any wondrous item that anybody can have. But what's interesting is look, the vessel can be a potion bottle, drinking horn, or other container meant to hold a liquid. You can flavor it into many different things. The scaled ornament, right? Jewelry, cloak, other wearable accessory. It could be a ring, it could be an earring, whatever, it doesn't matter. And you can, and you can tailor it. So what's interesting is instead of having like 25 different dragon items, they picked four, a weapon, something you wear, some kind of uh, focus item, and something that you drink from. And you tailor it around your group. You come up with the flavor that fits that. And I, I really like that idea of templates. I really like, you know, take a mechanical template and turn it into a block and know that I can associate that block with just about, I can, I can flavor it around any different thing. So that, I, I, really, I really like that idea. There's one other place that they do that that I think is of, of wide note. And uh, that is with the great worm templates. So instead of having instead of having a great worm for every one of the individual chromatics, a black great worm, a red great worm, a blue great worm, a green great worm, or a white great worm, they have one chromatic great worm stat block, right? And it's one stat block that has all the stats in it. It's not a template. You don't take this and wrap it on top of your ancient dragon, for example. You instead tailor this around the kind of great worm that it is. Immunity is based on what color it is. The, I think the breath weapon, uh, great worm exhales a blast of energy. And then the energy is determined by the great worm's kind, black, white, red, blue, or green, right? Now it's always a 300 foot cone, which is an enormous cone, right? It's always got that, but the rest of it is right, white great worm, white great worm. I can probably, no, no, I'm not gonna say it too fast. I'll get all tongue-tied. So it, that what's interesting is so that they have one great worm stat block, right? That covers five different kinds of great worms, 
right? And I think that that's kind of an interesting way of doing a template for a monster. Instead of having like a thing, a template that you wrap on top of a monster, it's like, here's a more generic monster stat block that you flavor around the, the particular type of monster that you want. You could do, for example, Titans, like elemental Titans, right? And you could have a Titan that has one elemental stat block, but you change pieces of it in order to fit the kind of element that they've got. So I thought that was a really, I really thought that that was an interesting design. It really, it caught my attention. The lore, the lore in the book is really interesting. And I was talking to some designer friends of mine this past week about it. And it's really interesting how divergent our opinions were. Uh, a couple of my good friends said, I really don't like the lore. It does not, I, I don't dig it. I don't like the first world idea. I don't like the idea that that really, really powerful dragons transcend different material planes. They felt like that was sort of a story way of fitting the marketing of the dragon. If you want a Shardalon to fit in any of your game worlds, you need some way that, that it makes sense that a Shardalon is both in Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and uh, Greyhawk. And in order to have that, you know, in order for that to work, why don't we come up with some lore that does it? So they felt like the lore fit the marketing, right? That... In order to kind of have the idea that Fizban is everywhere, we can't just have Fizban be a, be, a, be a Dragonlance thing, right? So I, on the other hand, thought it was actually kind of cool. I think the idea of treasure hordes, you know, I had another friend, he's like, look, dragon treasure hordes are not magical things. They're just piles of treasure. And it's like, okay, I, I think it's kind of interesting, the idea that the horde itself has because it's all piled together. And if you think of it, there's a lot of magic stuff that's sitting in that horde that it's kind of that the magic sort of grows around it and it becomes sort of a single magical thing. I thought that was kind of cool, right? So I'm actually on board with the lore. I think the first world idea is really cool. The idea of the first world is that all of the dragons came, the three the three big dragons, Tiamat, Bahamut, and the the ruby dragon whose name escapes me. They all got together and formed the first world and then the gem dragon shattered and turned into a bunch of pieces and then Tiamat and Bahamut kind of, you know, went in different directions. And the first world was destroyed and became all of the prime worlds that we know of. You know, I, I think that's cool. What I like about it is like, this idea that, you know, there could be remnants of the first world still out there, right? These prime, prime, primeval sections of the world that have been around since eons and they're floating out there in the astral sea and you can explore. I kind of like that idea. So... I'm on board with all of the lore in this book, but I'm on board with it for one big reason, which is I, I, I feel like it is optional. You know, I feel like I can choose what I want to use and not, and what I don't. And so I think your, right. Is that Sardior, I think was the name of the gem dragon. So I look at a book like this in the same way that this is something that I'm trying to do more of. And I've talked about it on previous shows before that all, everything is optional. Right, everything for D and D is optional. You don't have to use anything. You can use only what you want and throw away everything you don't. And that is true for anything that Wizards of the Coast publishes, and it's true for any of the third-party stuff that you find. Which is, and I, I was talking with my designer friends, and I said, you know, not only when I make this statement that treat Wizards of the Coast like you treat any third-party publisher, it's not an insult to either third-party publishers or to Wizards of the Coast. I think third-party publishers put out fantastic supplements. And many of the people who are doing third-party publishers used to work for Wizards of the Coast. And many of the people that work at Wizards of the Coast used to work for third-party publishers. So they're all the same designers, right? The, the pool of designers that are doing this, they're all the same people. So D&D isn't the one driving the direction. They are driving the direction in some regards, like when we talk about them coming out with new core books. Okay, you know, that's one thing. But uh, even that, we still have the old core books and we can still use what we're using. So 
this isn't World of Warcraft. They don't control the game. We control the game. We get to pick what we want. And so what that also does is it means that I'm happier with the stuff I'm getting from Wizards because I know it's optional. I know I don't have to use it if I don't want to. I know it's not like they made a choice and it's not the choice that I wanted to go. Instead, I can look at it and say, ooh, I really like some of this stuff. I'm not going to use it. And I was like, ooh, but I don't really like this other stuff. I'm not going to use that. So it makes me like Fizzband's stuff better when I think about the fact that it's optional. It's all optional, right? It's not driving the direction of everything in the game because we get to drive the direction. We get to, we get to choose. You know, everything is optional. So there was one area where I look at yeah, so thinking about more of the supplement is a good thing. Now I'm going to make my one little nitpick, right? And it's a little nitpick. So do not fixate on what I'm going to talk about here and say, oh my God, Fizzbands is terrible because they did X. Because I don't think it matters that much, really. And I'll talk about why. But I think that Wizards of the Coast, their, their design and development process has a problem when it comes to the damage of high challenge rating monsters. And we'll go back to this chromatic great worm but we'll look at it we'll look at a different one right let's look at some of the biggest ones they've got so let's look at the aspect of tiamat right the aspect of tiamat is a challenge 30 monster challenge 30 that means there's really no balanced reason why any group in DD should be facing a foe like this it is well beyond the challenge rating of of, of characters and in many ways this stat block so there, there's already a tiamat stat block that they did back in uh, horde of the dragon queen but now we've got a new one and in many ways, it is a very powerful, very devastating creature. At first, we think it has 574 hit points. Okay, that's one thing, except it has this chromatic wrath that when it is reduced to zero, it gets 500 more hit points, right? Which means it's actually got 1,074 hit points. It has mythic, mythic blows. It has a claw attack where it can grab somebody and restrain them. And then if it's in its mythic mode, it can hurl them through hell. So it's got all of the mechanics are really, really good. The problem that I find is with the damage output. And when you have damage output like, like 23 points of damage at CR 30, that doesn't do anything at all. Like people have so many ways, characters have so many ways to resist damage, heal damage, regenerate damage. There's so much damage mitigation at these high levels that doing 23 damage on a tail or 21 damage with a claw attack, that's not going to get anyone's attention. And there's parts where the, the math doesn't fit the story. And the example is you have an aspect of Tiamat, challenge rating 30. This is, this is the aspect of the god, right? And it's, done, it's doing 71 damage for a breath weapon, right? This is the, the, the aspect of a god doing 71 breath damage. But if we look, if we look at the ancient red dragon stat block, right? Challenge rating 24, not a god, not the aspect. Its breath weapon does 91 fire damage. Now, granted, it's the difference between a 90-foot cone and a 300-foot cone. And I know that there's mechanical reasons why the damage is the way it is, that theoretically the aspect of Tiamat is more dangerous because of the other aspects that it has and it's balanced out. And I know, trust me, I know how challenge rating math works when you're looking at like the dungeon master tables or you're using spreadsheets or anything like that. But my point is there's no way that the breath weapon of five dragon heads should be less damaged than the breath weapon of one dragon from a mortal dragon, from a non godly dragon, right? It just, the math doesn't work out. And I, this is something that I've seen with numerous monsters. I complained about it with some Rime of the Frost Maiden monsters. There's a particular, I'm not going to say a spoiler, but there's a particular very thematic monster in Rime of the Frost Maiden who there's no reason this monster should be doing three cold damage on one of its attacks. Three cold damage. It's ridiculous, right? So 
the, the numbers tell a story, right? This is something that, that Keith Amon, who writes The Monsters Know What They're Doing, this is something that he talks about in his books and on his blog that's very important, which is the numbers are telling a story. A 30 constitution tells you something about what that monster is like. And the breath weapon of it, of it tells what that monster is like. What this tells me is Tiamat's breath weapon isn't really that powerful, right? If this were doubled to 142, now it's got my attention. And that feels like Tiamat's breath weapon. So the good news is all of this is easily fixable. The rest of the stat block feels really good. And the rest of the stat block for things like the Great Worm also feel really good, except for the amount of damage they do. And luckily, it's really easy for us to turn up the dial and turn this from 71 to 120, 140, however much damage. I would, I would not be shy about doubling all of the damage that Tiamat does, right? This aspect of Tiamat could double all of the damage that they do. And I bet you a 20th level group would still survive. It wouldn't wipe them out. The, the thing that kind of bugs me about this is like, it feels like Wizards of the Coast is being very, very careful about making sure that they're staying to a certain curve when it comes to the damage output of monsters like this. That's a curve that many low CR monsters don't follow at all, right? And we have challenge five monsters that are dishing out tons of damage, right? So here's an example of a monster from Wild Beyond the Witchlight, Ringle Run, an NPC, right? And Ringle Run is a challenge rating five monsters, 42 hit points, 12, and that's fine. Multi-attack, Ringle Run makes three Staff of Power or Freezing Ray attacks, right? The Freezing Ray attack does 27 damage per shot, right? So three plus eight to hit, 27 damage per shot. So what is that? That's like 82 points of damage for three freezing rays. So you're telling me that a challenge rating five single wizard firing freezing ray at one target does as much damage to that target as the aspect of Tiamat does with a breath weapon. So why are we being so careful about the damage of high CR monsters when we're blowing up low level monsters and they're doing tons of damage? That, that's crazy amounts of damage for a challenge rating five. So the math isn't working at the low challenge rating. Challenge rate, low challenge rating monsters are actually, can be very, very dangerous and very, very deadly. But the minute you cross over to high, the damage output does not keep up. So I, I don't, the sad, the sad bit is, I don't expect that this is gonna get fixed by the time we see Monsters of the Multiverse. I think that the Monsters of the Multiverse are gonna have better simplified stat blocks, which I am on board with. I think other people are not. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with the fact that the aspect of Tiamat is, it looks like she would be very easy to run, right? And I like that. So I like the overall design. I just think the damage output is too low, particularly for high challenge rating monsters, challenge rating 10 and above. So an interesting way of kind of looking at this, so like taking a look at the, at the chromatic great worm, this is another one that's goofy. It does 78 damage on its breath weapon, right? And, and so this is a great worm. And so this is the template you would use for, an, for a red great worm. So we have an ancient red dragon that breathes for 91 points. And then it gets older. And instead of adding more damage, it does less damage on its breath weapon. I get it. It's 300 foot cone. It should theoretically hit more people. So damage output wise, it's actually the overall aggregate is, is better. And obviously it's mythic. So it has tons and tons of hit points and all this stuff. But I just, I don't buy this one little bit that like the breath weapon goes down that the amount of damage per character goes down it doesn't make much sense so yeah so i think that that's really interesting one of the things that i'm going to compare this to so level up 5e the advanced level up advanced 5e a kickstarter for a entirely new version of fifth edition that was published by n world came out and they actually as soon as the kickstarter funded and was complete they sent out the pdfs of it so i have the pdf of this, of this book. And it has their versions of ancient dragons and they have their versions of great worms as well. And in their case, their great worms apply a template to an existing ancient dragon. 
But when I look at this, right, it does 98 fire damage on its fiery breath weapon. So it actually does more damage. And it's pretty interesting to me that with a book that just came out, you have two books, Fizzbands that came out from Wizards of the Coast, Advanced 5e, Level Up, level up Advanced 5e that came out from Endworld. And I think it's possible that the ancient dragons and, and the great worms that came out in Level Up 5e are probably better, right? I think that certainly damage output wise, I think they're, I think they're stronger. So we'll see where this goes and we'll see what Monsters of the Multiverse looks like. It's coming out in a couple months and, and we'll be able to look at it. It's, it's, it's so far along now, I doubt they're gonna be able to tweak monster damage on it. And I think it's a shame because I know that Monsters of the Multiverse, which is reprinting monsters from Volo's Guide and Morden Kanan's, and I think a few other sources, has a lot of high challenge rating monsters. And I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're covering the design and I think the design will be better. I don't think the damage is gonna match up. I, th I think we're gonna see weak, weak, monsters right and it makes me it makes me a little sad on the other hand i've got lots of monsters from uh, lots of other places so it looks like a lot of different people are getting in their kickstarters before the end of the year typically the december and january time frame is not a good time to launch a kickstarter which is why we talked a lot about i think five kickstarters last week and we're talking about four kickstarters this week. hey my mom is here everybody say hello to my mom so i'm going to talk about four kickstarters I'm gonna talk about them relatively quickly because I wanna to get to the spotlight and I'd like to get to some patron questions today. So uh, Plangea, uh, Plain, the Plangea Kickstarter is being run by Atlas Games. And one of the producers at Atlas Games is Justin Alexander, who writes the blog, The Alexandrian. I'm a big fan of his work. And I'm uh, and when I looked at this, many of my friends brought this to my attention and said, you really need to check out Plangea. Plangea is a 5e source book, a campaign source book built around the primordial times it's 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 almost like caveman 5e right it's it's you know prehistoric fifth edition dinosaurs gods that walk the earth you know different takes on character classes more shaman style character classes and things like that and it looks really really good they have a free preview if i can find it there it is they have a free preview a 23 page preview that you can download directly off of their kickstarter page a first look Beautiful artwork, fantastic page design. You know, just the, the, the art is awe-inspiring, on, on right? Really like, you know, these kind of, you know, mystical goat gods and things like that. Man, a lot of schmeck. Looks, it looks really, really good. And, you know, I've, 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 I've read through it enough in order to say, yeah, I'm back in this thing. I, I like the idea. It's taking a different take on various races and how they interplay. Uh, new take on classes. So they have kind of, you know, they have these things called kinships. Look, they've got a pterodactyl person. Who doesn't want to play a pterodactyl person, right? Classes re-imaged, re reimagined, right? So you have the aesthetic, the barbarian, the chanter, you know, the guardian, right? So they're kind of taking what have been sort of the, the Eastern or, or Western European style classes and turning them into cool primeval style so i really it looks really really good many of my friends are excited about about using this new spells all kinds of different things that are going to be in here so i think that looks like a really strong kickstarter and i'm, I'm excited for it and i back i backed it i back everything sky raiders of abraxas so Sky Raiders of Abraxas is a Kickstarter uh, launched by Laura and Tracy Hickman. These are the two creators, or one, one of the two creators of Dragonlance and the two creators of the Ravenloft adventure, I6 Ravenloft. So they have been in the D&D design space for a long time. I believe they were consultants on Curse of Strahd as well, the most popular of the fifth edition adventures. And they put out a big 
campaign, a, a big Kickstarter for a campaign world called the Sky Raiders of Abraxas. This is a very steampunky sky ship style campaign built from a, what, what we call like steampunk Australia, a former continent that was used as a, as a prison colony that has sort of grown up and now is reaching out on its own into the rest of the world. Man, I'm so dry today. So G GM Workshop says, is this Eberron? I wouldn't say it's Eberron. It's more, it's, it's probably lower in, in its power than Eberron from what I feel. They do not offer a preview, unfortunately. I was really hoping for a downloadable preview where I could take another look, but there's tons of stuff on their page here. They offer a, you know, I backed the, as you can see, the digital PDF. There is some kind of like augmented reality angle to this too, some kind of way of like, using your phone and taking shots from the book and it will it will give you information and you can pass that information to your players digitally. I'm always apprehensive about that kind of stuff because I feel like, you know, who's who's actually doing that and do they know what they're doing? And it's very, very easy to screw that kind of stuff up. But I wouldn't worry about that too much because the rest of the Kickstarter off is very traditional books and physical products or PDFs and things like that. So looks very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what the design is like from two people who have been designing D&D for like 40 years. And, and see how that works out. So this, you know, yeah, it looks, looks, I mean, the, the production quality is very good. We haven't seen what the internals look like yet. So I can't, I can't speak for the quality of the material itself, but it all looks, it all, all looks very good. So very, very interesting Kickstarter, very popular Kickstarter, $350,000, 208, days to go, 2,800 backers really looks. Good. The next Kickstarter uh, is by my friends at 2C Gaming. Celeste Conowich, uh, I think is spearheading this one called Relics and Rarities. And it's interesting because this is a guy who treasures boons and beyond. So, you know, can't go wrong with a book of, you know, book of treasure that you can use. And one nice thing about a book of treasure is that you can use, if you only use one, you can use just one piece of it if you want. You can use one item if you want. You don't, it's not the kind of thing you have to kind of wrap your whole system around or add a bunch of new house rules or do a whole new thing. You can just grab it and pull out a piece and use it, right? So really neat idea. From my understanding, Celeste Conowich is spearheading the, the, the entire endeavor. And this one does have a preview. Really cool. I really like the design. The design is, is uh, very different from other, other ones that you see. Much, much more kind of whimsy in it, right? Which I really like. I like the you know, higher use of, of brighter colors, pastel colors. Uh, really, really cool idea. And what something that I like particularly about it is that it isn't the same as the product I'm going to spotlight today which is The Vault of Magic by Kobold Press. It means I've got two books that aren't exactly the same thing, which you wouldn't get with a book of magic items anyway, but the, the style of magic items that 2C Gaming is bringing in this product feels very different. First of all, they're all about like buying and selling magic items. How much does it cost? What does it cost to make? I, I believe there's a whole thing about making magic items here. A great take on something that many people have asked for in D&D, which is how do we you know, how do we, you know, what if we, I know you're not supposed to buy and sell magic items in D&D, but what if you wanted to, right? So this offers those options and that's really great. This talks about like how much is a nine life stealer, 8,800 gold pieces, right? It seems kind of cheap, but of course I, I'm assuming you still have to find it. 50,000 gold for a Vorpal Sword. It's got a whole thing on hirelings and followers in it, right? So a lot of material in their sample chapters. Oh yeah, they have a unicorn follower. My, my wife is going to demand to have a unicorn follower. Really, really cool looking book. Very beautiful looking book. So I'm, I'm eager, you know, I'm, I'm eager for this one. I, I definitely backed it and, and that's very exciting. So that's Rewards and Rarities by 2C Gaming. Check them out. All the links for all these Kickstarters are in the show notes below. 
So the last one I want to talk about is different, and that's my, my friends at Dwarven Forge. Dwarven Forge is a company that I really love and respect. I've, I've met them a few times. I've done a little bit of freelance work for them in the past, and I'm a big supporter of their products. And they are running a Kickstarter right now for a thing known as Reliquaries. If you're not familiar with Dwarven Forge, they make 3D tabletop, they focus primarily on 3D tabletop accessories for like battle maps and things. And, and my my... I would argue they are the best in the world at it. If you want the best 3D cool tabletop terrain, Dwarven Forge is the way to go. And it costs as much as it would as you would expect it to cost, given that it is the number one thing. So they are creating a Kickstarter. They just did a big Wildlands Kickstarter. And while they're which was all mountains and forests and swamps and stuff, I backed it heavily. I'm gonna have big mountains shipped to my door, you know, soon. And while they're waiting that to deliver, they launched another Kickstarter. They didn't want to do two different terrain Kickstarters back to back when they haven't yet de- de- delivered the first one, which makes sense. So they are doing a smaller Kickstarter for a thing called Reliquaries. And their idea, which I think is really interesting, is to develop a product that actually fits multiple, very, very many different purposes. So these reliquaries, let's see if there's like a good picture of a single reliquary. Here's here's the example, like three different reliquaries. There's five different styles, three different types for each style. And they start off as a dice holder. If you're a player and you just want a cool thing to put on the table that holds your dice for you, a reliquary can do that. If you have special dice that you really love and you want to display them, you can use these displays to display your dice. They also work as tabletop terrain. You can take this object, you can drop it in the middle of a table and use it as a prop for your table. In my case, I'm very likely to stick it on my desk down here and have it around so I can enjoy it and look at it. But I can also grab it and then take it up and put it on my gaming table. So uh, it can be used for wargaming. It can be used for role-playing games. They also have these uh, dice counter things. Let's see if they... Yeah, these guys track your abilities. Four different little pillars that can hold D6s. They come with their D6s. And you can use them for spell slots. You can use them for hit points. You can use them for a lot of counter counter purposes. Magic the Gathering counters. All kinds of things like that. So they wanted to make... It's all built in Dwarven Forge style, which is uh, made out of PVC, you know, very thick, solid PVC plastic with that are hand-painted. And they're really, really, they're really, really gorgeous. So I'm, I'm backing it, of course, because I back all of the, I, all the Kickstarters. They have five different kinds, Dwarven, Elven, Artificer, Elemental, and Eldric. And you can take a look at the Kickstarter page itself and see all the different kinds of styles. If you watch their YouTube videos, you get a much better idea of what these look and feel like when you see them on YouTube. Whenever I watch a Dwarven Forge YouTube video and I go from, I, I really don't need that to, wow, yeah, I kind of want that. So very, very cool. But it does bring up an important, this you know, shows how high, uh, how, how big they are, shows their style. Really interesting thing. Now, so this is different than other kinds of accessories in our role-playing game stuff. I have talked before, I've done multiple videos on the fact that we can enjoy our hobby for nothing, for $0. This is not $0. These are expensive you know, these things, each one of these is about 25 to $35 a piece, right? So they are not cheap. And Dwarven Forge overall is not a cheap hobby to get into. I can, I can, I can personally attest to that. And the reality is you don't need this stuff in order to really enjoy your D&D game. They're, they're fun things to have. They look cool. They're, I, I like to think of them as a side hobby, right? That they're kind of their own hobby, sort of like miniature collecting. You don't really need all of the miniatures you need in order to run your D&D game. But sometimes it's fun to have a miniature on hand. I've got a Dracolich sitting right over there. And I, I don't know if I've ever used that Dracolich in a game, but it's kind of fun to have sitting right next to me, right? So in the same way I look at Dwarven Forge stuff, you know, I've, I've, I've done small scientific surveys on like how much better is a game with or without this stuff? And the answer is not much different. 
right? So does it really make your game like five times better? No, it does not. In fact, and I've said it before, the things that are going to make your game better are all free, generally are free. You don't have to pay for the things that are going to make your players enjoy your game more. So yeah, don't mention the money. You, you guys can take a look at the money yourself. They're expensive, right? I mean, it's, you know, hundreds of dollars when you get into it, right? It's, you know, 35 bucks for a solo tracker. It's, you know, a hundred bucks for the four pillars and it keeps going up and up and up. If you want all of them and all of the things, you know, you want to you blow your bank wide open. $1,200 gets you everything, right? $1,200, you get multiple versions of all of the different things. And people are like, $1,200, oh my God. You're like, well, that's like a set of golf clubs, right? So... One thing that it got me thinking about though, and when I, when I, what I, one of the things I like to do is I like to really think about and analyze which ones I'm going to back. You know, I like to think about and analyze like which kind of Dwarven Forge pledge I want to make. And there's a new bit of calculus that is going into my equations, right? And that new bit of calculus is, what does this mean when 70% of my games are now going to be played online indefinitely, right? So I used to play exclusively in person. And I would run on the order of about 10 games a month and they'd be in person. I'd run two regular, I'd have an in-person game at my home. I have an in-person game at a game shop every week. And then every other week on like a Saturday, we'd have some friends come by and we'd play a D&D game about twice a month. So I was playing on the order of like nine to 10 games in person. But I can tell you that my game shop game has now gone online and we now have people that have moved away. So we're staying, we're, I wanna keep the same group. So we're staying online. We're not gonna be getting together in person. And my, those, those other games, the, the, the one-offs, a lot of the, my friends that we play with live far away. They live like an hour, hour and 10 minutes away. It's so much easier to play online, right? And, and they have kids, they have, uh, in some cases they have infant children and you know, they need to take care of the kids, right? They've got a lot of things going on. So for them to leave the house is a big deal. Them to be able to go down to the basement and play, not as big a deal, which means about 70% of my games are gonna go to online now, which means a lot of the stuff that I've been focusing on for what matters at the table doesn't matter at the table anymore because 70% of my table is on the online table. And I could tell you that when you look at things like Dwarven Forge and stuff like that, Dwarven Forge put out a whole map about how to use Dwarven Forge to make every level of, how to make every level of Curse of Strahd, of Castle Ravenloft. And, you know, it was a lot, right? It was obviously a lot of stuff and a lot of money, but it was also a lot of time. And I just ran my Ravenloft game uh, a couple weeks ago. And to take all of the maps for every level and put them in Albert Rodeo took me eight minutes. It was so much easier. What I'm finding is it's now easier for me to run games online and show off more stuff and use battle maps and use accessories and have an infinite number of tokens of monsters of any monster that I need. It's so much faster and easier for me. What's it gonna be like to move back to in-person play? And what does it mean for a lot of these physical accessories? So these, this is like a, you know, a little bit of a crisis of faith for me, right? Because I'm used to playing online. I'm used to playing in person. And I kept thinking, oh, I'll be going back to playing in person, but maybe not. And the reality is like, you could play D&D with your phone. You don't need anything else, right? And you can play D&D for free on your phone and pay nothing and play as much D&D as you want for the rest of your life, assuming your phone still works and assuming all the tools are still around. But the, I'm sure there'll be new tools. That boggles my mind. And so I'm thinking about this because it's like when I think about reliquaries and I'm like, oh, that'd be really cool to put in this as a centerpiece to a battle. It's like, am I really going to do that, right? How often am I going to do that? And if I'm not, is it, it, will it be cool to just sit on the side? I mean, this is like, it's sort of like the Mind Flayer head plaque that they sell at, at WizKids now. You're not using that in your game, but it looks kind of cool. And maybe it, it, it kind of, you know, lets you surround yourself with D&D stuff, which is cool. 
So that's something that I've been thinking more about. And I thought about it particularly when I was thinking about Dwarven Forge reliquaries. That said, I'm still back in the Kickstarter and I still support them. And I love, I love their company, right? They're a bunch of artists that are in New York and, and all over the country and they're hand making this stuff. They, they, they hand sculpt it all before it all turns into molds and it gets turned into the stuff that we buy. It's really cool stuff. And I think that they're changing how they're thinking about it because now we got things that are holding up dice rather than just things that are used for tabletop accessories. Let's talk about our product spotlight for the day. Today, I'm going to talk about a product I just got from another Kickstarter that I backed, I don't know, some number of months ago from probably my favorite third-party publisher or probably the, the best third-party publisher of, of, of content for fifth edition, Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press is run by Wolfgang Bauer, former editor of Dragon Magazine and creator for Wizards of the Coast. He's been running his own company now for a long time. They produce outstanding products. They run multiple Kickstarters, multiple Kickstarters a year. I think they're in the middle of a Kickstarter right now, which I previewed last week. But I got the reward for the Vault of Magic. And when it hit my virtual desk, when it dropped on my desktop, on my laptop, I read it and I was like, this thing's really good and I want to talk about it. So we're going to talk about that today. So the Vault of Magic is a 242 page source book of magic items. Uh, it focuses on magic items for your fifth edition game. It has more than 900 magic items in it. In fact, if you take the variants of magic items, like the plus one, the plus two, the plus three version of a magic item, more than, it's got thousands, more than, more than a, well over a thousand, well over a thousand magic items. They reached out to a lot of people in the community to make magic items. Uh, I happened to be one of them. I wrote a magic item. We'll take a look at the item that I that I created that I created here. But a lot of other influencers are in the D and D community. A lot of other creators in the in the in the community made magic items. So as you can imagine, it is just packed with magic. Look at it. Look at it. The table of contents is enormous, right? Enormous table of contents on what it's got, and all different kinds of things from all for all different kinds of players. A hard part with something like this is like, you can't just read it. You can't just pick this book up and read it, right? You, you, there's so much stuff in here that you just can't keep up. So I wanted to make a whip and actually secretly, this is a whip uh, that one of the villains would use in uh, Ruins of the Grendel Root. It was built on some of the lore behind the Ruins of the Grendel Root. And Monty Python, Mondi's Python says, did you fix the whip? I tried. The whip is kind of an underused magic item. And I said, wouldn't it be kind of cool to make a, a magical whip that someone would actually want to use, right? That would be, that would be cool. So it's a blue, it's a blue dragon whip, you know, made out of blue dragon scales. And it's, you know, there's, there's multiple variants, plus one, plus two, plus three. And as an action, you can sort of ignite the whip and electricity rolls up and down this whip and does an extra D6 lightning damage to any target that it hits. So now it does 1D4 plus 1D6 plus one instead. So a now it feel it has it still has reach and everything like that, but it is still a pretty well balanced. Now you've got a whip that you would actually want to use, right? And I thought it would be like a really cool rogue weapon because I think they can use it as a, uh, a finesse. I think it's a finesse weapon. So, you know, so a lot of really cool electric. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an electric whip. And it was used by the half dragon taskmasters of a long ago forgotten empire. That's the uh, majocracy of the Black Star, for those of you who are familiar with Ruins of the Grendel Root. That Forgotten Empire is the majocracy of the Black Star. They used half dragons to kind of, as their, as their, 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 you know, the, 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 those who kind of 
mastered over everybody else in the lair and they used so so they would use these electric whips as their as their kind of items so kind of a fun item so it's just it's packed with stuff like this right but there's so many items in here valkyrie's bite where does it look magical scimitar rare requires attunement black blade scimitar has a guard that resembles overstretched raven wings plus two bonus attack and damage while attuned to the scimitar you have advantage on initiative rolls while you hold the scimitar it sheds dim purple light in a 10 foot radius right very really cool select item so i really like that it also has uh what they are referring to so it also has a thing that they're referring to as fabled magic items right and a fabled item remember we talked about the dragon items that you steep in the horde and they grow in power fabled items grow as you grow in level again numerous groups have done this we actually have a few of these items in uh, fantastic layers we have items that grow as you level up they gain new powers uh, wind harrow i think was one that i made in that so it's a really cool way of giving somebody a magic item that grows with them as they grow in power. So instead of replacing magic items, they're 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 growing. And there's a whole bunch of different ones in here. Uh, a lot of a lot of really cool items. And look, the the art is outstanding. The art is always outstanding. Fifth level and higher properties require attunement, right? So. You know, here's a suit of arm, blood spike armor, uh, frightening armor. As your level increases, you get the following benefits. Th a fifth level, once per turn. So let's see, it starts off. Uh, while wearing this armor, you can use a bonus action to make one melee weapon attack with the armor's spikes against a target within five feet. If the attack hits, the spikes deal 1d4 piercing damage. You're proficient with this attack and use your strength modifier. So, you know, you can bash somebody as a bonus action with the armor. That's cool. It's plate, right? So, yeah. Frightening armor, a fifth level, once per turn, you hit a creature. They cause the unnatural bleeding. Right, so they can bleed DC saving DC check, take necrotic damage. Ninth, plus one bonus to AC, so it grows in power, 15th, 17th, etc. So you see these things and they grow up in they grow in power, right? And I think that that's really cool. But the number one thing that I looked at in this book and said, oh man, this changes everything. It changes my my relationship with this book is something that according to, to Wolfgang Bauer, uh, their editor added in late into the game, and I'm really glad they did. And that uh, that is a replacement treasure listing for the one that's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So what they did, recognizing that no one is going to read more than you know 900 magic items, they created a set of random tables that you can roll against that essentially replace the tables you would roll against in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And you can replace them because they include all of the SRD magic items that exist in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So there's a handful of items. I forget. Somebody told me it's like it's about 14 or so. There's some number of items in the Dungeon Master's Guide that do not appear in the, in the system resource document that they make available to third-party publishers. They, but everything else is added in here, which means you can roll on these tables. You've got treasure troves by challenge rating. You have, you know, the, the, you can roll here and then roll and see which items you pull up. It then tells you which table to roll against. And then you go to those table. And not only does it have all of the magic items in the, the, the vault of magic here, it's got magic items that are also in the DMG. So you're, you're combining the two tables together in one book which means if i'm rolling for for magic items now i would rather roll on this than the dmg one because it includes the dmg stuff so i think that that is a really great way to make this book useful at the table that otherwise it would not be nearly as useful like i just don't know how the hell i would pick an item to offer up there's uh, with 900 items i don't i can't read 900 items but in this case i can roll a few times take a look at what the tables tell me and say oh that's that's really interesting uh, I do wish the tables had rarity and maybe they have rarity associated with them, but I, I kind of need to figure out like, well, which tables should I roll on for different tiers of play? I assume the higher the table, the more powerful the item. Hey, there's the whip of the blue worm. Yay. Roll a 95 and you get my whip. So 
I think that this, this, these tables, and I, I took this and immediately I talked to Ryan at Two C Gaming and said, "I hope you guys are putting this in your book because it makes, it makes it far more useful, right? It's, it's, it can be hard to, to, to use all this. There's a rarity table. Cool. Is the thing I need is I need to know which one of the random tables has a rarity associated to it, so I know which ones are rare, which ones are common, uncommon, and whatever. On the other hand, I could just sort of roll. I could just sort of roll and do the thing. I would love it if somebody made an online version of this, right? I, I, it would be, it would be very, very cool if somebody went, dropped over to perchance and created a perchance random table that I could just roll on, on the web and pull up items. That would be very cool. But you can see like how many tables they added in here, tons and tons of tables. So I think that this is a really outstanding, it really makes this product useful. So you can pre-order, the book came out for Kickstarter backers, but you can pre-order the book both in PDF and as a physical book, given that the PDF version is 30 bucks and the physical hardcover and PDF is 55, I would suggest getting both. The Cobalt Press is one of the few publishers where I almost always order, I think I always order, physical versions of their books and I've never been disappointed. They, I really love to have the Cobalt Press books. They, they, they're, they're excellent, excellent stuff. It is in stock now. So you can buy it right now. Availability in stock. So it's really, really good. And I, I highly recommend it. Really, really fantastic book. So that is the spotlight for today. Let's talk about some questions from Patreon. Every month I post a post every month for the last two months. I have posted a post on my Sly Flourish Patreon page and you can ask a question on the Patreon page that I either cover in this video. I will do a short YouTube video on the topic if, I, if, it, if it works out such, or I will answer the question on the Patreon itself. And uh, I got tons of questions in November. Piles, piles of questions showed up. So my plan is I'm gonna cover as many questions as I can in the shows that we're doing right now. And then whatever questions I don't, I'm going to have an exclusive Patre Patreon Q&A video that's an hour long where all we do is cover questions. And that way we should be able to get through all of the questions that come in in a month. I'll probably do that closer to the end of the month. So I'll see whatever questions I have not answered. I'll put those together in a video and I will do, I will, I will probably on like a Thursday night, I'll probably stream it, but I don't think it, it won't be up and available on YouTube for everybody. It will be listed specifically for, for patrons. So yeah, but let's look at some questions right now. Don C asks, how do you string together different modules for your party to allow them to spiral outwards? For example, I'm running Sunless Citadel for four folks. I've introduced breadcrumbs for the other modules in hopes that they take the bait and provide a path. If they decide to go to some other fantastic location after this one, how do I make them end up where they need to be without railroading it? Would a montage work or would you recommend a hex crawl? Good, good thoughts here. My friend, Jeff Greiner, who we, we talk every month on behind the DM screen, my friend, Jeff Greiner likes to take multiple hardcover adventures and pile them together and offer up a rich world that has many different paths. So you could go straight from Waterdeep Dragon Heist into Curse of Strahd. I think he did that for his last one. And so it's a really interesting idea. I would not be, I, I would not be apprehensive about talking to your players outside of the game and saying like, hey, I've got these three hardcover modules. We could, you know, would you like to go underground and out of the abyss? Would you like to hunt down cultists in Princes of the Apocalypse? Or would you like to uh, travel across the Sword Coast and uh, deal with giants a lot in Storm King's Thunder? And then let the players kind of decide what's the overall theme. It's sort of like an expansion for a video game, right? You get a video game and you have an expansion. They expand, you know it's an expansion, but in the world it's like, yeah, but how do I get from the current game into the expansion part of it, right? I think that that, I, I, I think it's fine to just talk to your players about it outside of the game and say, here's what's going on, how it works. That's if you're going to like take the modules and say, we're going to then shift direction over to a particular module. Another way of handling is taking the modules, hitting them with a hammer, they shatter into pieces and you spread those pieces all throughout your campaign world. So you could say like, uh, you know, and then 
put the seeds in your campaign in the same way that you would have seeds for something like Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. So a patron could say, hey, I've got this stuff that I'm going to go sell, but I'm selling it to the Duergar dwarves down in Gracklestug. I'm worried about traveling through the Underdark by myself. I'd like to hire your band to come join me and go down to Gracklestug. And the party can say, oh, that's okay. And then you might have another quest, right? Another quest is, hey, some friends of mine, I have some dwarves that come from Miribar and they have gone missing inside Deseran Valley. And I could really use your help to go into the Deseran Valley and figure out what's going on there. And that leads into some of the Prince of the Apocalypse stuff. So, you you know, take different pieces and shatter it. I wouldn't I wouldn't overthink it, right? I, I don't think you have to worry too much about, like your players understand what's going on. You don't have to... Don't overthink it, right? The players players want to have a good time too. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about about trying to keep everything in game and not having them realize that they've switched from one adventure to another. Joseph C says, "How do you deal how do you deal with delivering on existing and or subverting expectations? Sometimes I worry that I'm paying playing too much into the existing tropes and sometimes I worry that I'm subverting expectations in a way that won't land. Will my players expect the dragon to be sitting on the hoarded treasure and be disappointed when it's something else or would they be disappointed if it's all there and it isn't a twist? I find myself doing an inordinate amount of amount of worrying about what my players expect and trying to deliver that while also have a satisfying game and story for all. So I would also say the same same to the previous question. Don't overthink it too much, right? That like trying to worrying too much about what the expectations of your players. You can get kind of you know you can get sort of wound up. You build like a self fulfilling prophecy about this kind of stuff, and instead, so I would I would probably lean more towards not subverting expectations. I would I would lean more towards running it as expected and then wrapping it in lots of interesting flavor and details, right? That make it interesting, even if it's the same kind of thing. What makes this interesting? What's the lore behind it, right? A dragon sitting on a hoard of treasure is kind of boring, but a particular dragon with a particular history sitting on a particular pile of treasure that came from a particular kingdom with lots of interesting art and weird magic items that have been existed, you know, put put details in there that make that particular branch unique without changing the expectation that there's a dragon sitting on a hoard of treasure. I would be very careful about subverting expectations when it doesn't fit the theme of the story, right? I think, you know, think about what, how things operate in the world and ask with the, with the subvertive expectation, don't subvert expectations just to do it. We've seen TV shows. I'm not going to name any names, but there's some TV shows that subvert, that built themselves on subverting expectations and then decided they needed to keep doing that. And they did it in ways that weren't realistic and the, the, the show fell apart. I have, I've multiple examples of that, but I have one really bad one, but I'm not going to talk about it. it. Don't subvert expectations just to do it. Think about how things are operating in the story of the world and ask yourself, does it make sense if it would be, if, if an expectation would be subverted a certain way? An example I like to bring up is Mad Max Fury Road, right? Mad Max Fury Road is the most straightforward storyline to a, you know, to, to, to a movie that you can have. And there's only one real twist, which is a bad guy becomes a good guy, right? And even that one's not that big a deal and it's not that big a subverted expectation, it's just a straightforward story. You don't have to have a lot of twists and turns in it, right? Like literally that one, I think is they, they go forward, then they make a left turn, then they turn around and go back and that's it, right? It's so straightforward, but it's the flavor and it's the interesting characters and it's the situations and it's the look and it's all this other stuff that makes it really interesting. So instead of worrying about either staying with expectations or subverting expectations, think about what things are happening in the world and then wrap it in as much detail as you can to make it interesting. It's my thought on it anyway, right? Just my feelings on the matter. Edward B says, what are your preferred ways of handling character death? 
Do you always provide a way for them to be resurrected? If not, how do you go about helping a, the player to create a new character to join the party? Do you allow the new character to be on par with the surviving party members, or are they lower level and power or have fewer magic items? I will start at the bottom and work my way up. If I'm bringing a new character in a new game, whether it's either character death or a new character, that, a new player that's joining the game late, I always let them stay at the same level as everybody else. I don't see a reason to have them be lower level. The other reasons I use milestone leveling, and they would always be out of date if we use milestone leveling. So I do... And I usually let them have some kind of magic item, usually like one per tier after the first tier. So, you know, if they're fifth level or above, they have an item. They have one magic item, maybe two items for 11th and above and so on. So I, I don't want them to be lower level. And if somebody dies and they bring in a new character, I, I wouldn't want to further punish them by saying now your new character isn't as good as the one that died, right? I think that kind of sucks. I can also say that for me, I kill characters infrequently enough that I haven't had to have a general rule for it. We'll look at it. And in some cases, the player says, I'd rather bring in a new character. That one's dead. I'm bringing a new character. In other circumstances, there's ways that they're able to be resurrected and, and they come back. And some of those have made for very memorable stories, right? Some of them are stories that my players and I share and laugh about years after they have, after they have happened. So uh, in some cases, you know, a, a player has brought in a new character and they, they join in and we figure out, you know, much like bringing in any character that if, if somebody was out for a few weeks and then comes back in, how do we bring that character in? Same way, you just get them in there as fast as you can and try not to make a too big, you know, big deal out of it. So I don't, I don't try to say I always have a way for them to resurrect their character. I also don't say like I always, you know, I, I, am, I am certainly a DM who kills character, tries not to do it very often, right? And I am, I am a softy when it comes to killing characters. I try not to do it. That said, it certainly happens. I've certainly killed, like usually one or two characters dies in any given campaign that I'm running. In some cases more. I had one player who had two characters die, both by disintegrations, both in the Tomb of Annihilation, both in Tomb of the Nine Gods. I felt really bad for her. She had, you know, two characters that she brought in that died. Yeah, so I think, I don't, I don't, I, I don't hang on to any one system. I don't say you will always have a way to be resurrected by this mechanism, right? Instead, I try to, you know, what, what, again, what makes sense in the world? What are the options? If it's low level, they're probably going to roll up a new character. If it's higher level, there's probably a way that they can be resurrected, which I think is probably what most people do. But yeah, I would bring in, I, I personally bring them in at the same level as everybody else. And I usually give them enough magic items. They might be lower on the list of like how many magic items they have, but usually something that kind of fits the tier that they've got, which I don't think is out of hand. Fail asks, this is a question about pacing and secrets in longer campaigns. My perspective on Storm King's Thunder. How do you keep track of what the players' PCs know? Or do you keep track of that at all? What happens if multiple clues have been delivered and they are supposed to understand the final piece of information, but they don't? I don't generally keep track of what the players know. Uh, this isn't that idea that I throw my secrets away. And if, if I, I just kind of try to think about it and I don't have any problem with reiterating secrets that come back more than once. And my players will note it. They'll go, oh, you, I, oh we, we've learned that before, right? And you go, oh, okay, good. So in general, I'm lazy, right? As you imagine. And I don't keep track of the secrets that they know. I kind of just, whatever I happen to remember they've picked up is whatever I happen to do. I don't have a system for it. I don't, I don't keep track of secrets and put them like in characters. So I know which character knows what secret or what secrets they've picked up. And if they, if they should have uh, a piece of information that they don't, that the players don't seem to grab after they've already gotten the information, I will make that a new secret. And I will say like, as your characters are talking together and you're piecing these pieces of information, you realize that there's this other thing that you've learned, right? And they, they can learn a secret. And that's because like the player, the characters are working harder than the players are in the world, 
right? And that's one where we can, because the player, because the characters are working harder than the players, the characters have more at risk than the players do. It's okay to give the characters things that the players aren't necessarily going to have on hand. So yeah, I don't, if, if, you know, what happens if multiple clues have been delivered and they're supposed to understand the final piece, but they don't give them the final piece, right? I mean, that's one option. Uh, the other one is more secret, more, you know, give more secrets, more secrets until eventually like it's so obvious that this thing exists, right? Give them enough information to be able to come to that conclusion. Kale K says, how do you manage role-playing multiple NPCs and their dialogue to each other? I feel like I've answered this before. I feel, I, I feel silly doing voices to myself between two NPCs. I try to narrate the conversation without actually role-playing the voices, but it still feels awkward. Yeah, the answer to this question is having NPCs talk to other NPCs, I do it as infrequently as possible. You don't want to have NPCs talking to each other or summarize it, right? Like what are the, what, think about what are the key points that the NPCs are telling each other that the players, that the characters might overhear and list those out and just give it to the players, right? That no one wants to watch a DM play with themselves right? They just want to, you know, so have the NPC, that, that joke was on purpose. They don't want to have, in, instead, summarize what's going on, give them the information and, and have the NPCs turn their attention towards the characters rather than towards one another. So the, the big one is just, you find, there's usually ways to think about the situation and recognize you probably don't need it. If you're having a lot of conversations where NPCs are talking to other NPCs, then you might want to rethink why. Is your story so complicated that that kind of thing needs to happen? Or can it be summarized instead? Can, a, can, a, can, a, can an NPC come to the party and say, I just overheard the king talking to his viceroy, and here's some things he said. But they're talking to the characters about it, right? So think about how to reframe the situation so that it's NPCs talking to the characters rather than NPCs talking to each other. That was KLK. Let's do one more. Chris S. asks, when fleshing out some fantastic locations, I love to get into details. I find the more details, the more believable it becomes. I find this goes against the philosophy of less is more. Filling out the details is not the lazy way. This is always my last step. Do you always use fantastic locations table or do you go with the theme of the adventure and plan accordingly? I agree. I think de I was just talking about how details we can use details instead of subverting expectations to make games interesting. So yes, I agree with details. One of the things I tried, I think secrets and clues are a way to inject details in and they are secrets and clues are ways to have details that are disassociated from where you're going to place the detail, which means the same 10 details can be applied to a different area. And that's what makes that idea so powerful, right? That, that yes, I, I like to think of secrets and clues as the way of injecting detail into the, I, I find it to be a valuable tool for that. And the other way is I will use published adventures. So I was running my game for my wife, uh, my wife and my friends yesterday. And I said, I'm going to, right at the last minute, I said, I'm going to set it in the old Margrave, the forest from the Midgard setting, from Cobalt Press's Midgard setting. And that's because I already know the old Margrave and I know some of the things about it. And there's interesting details I can apply to the adventure because it's set in the old Margrave, right? The Lazy DM Companion is going to have lots of tables that help you generate details that you can apply to wrap around the rest of the framework of your adventure. So yeah, it, 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 it can be lazy, right? There are some lazy tricks to getting those, to, to injecting some of those details. And I would say the lazy trick are just like secrets. Don't associate the details that you have with the place where they're being discovered. Throw those in secrets and clues and then apply them, apply them when that makes sense. And then use published settings because there's tons of details, right? Think about the Midgard world book. That book is huge. And that's where like, when we talk about laziness and the importance of like, if you read source books, 
that is something that's if you if you're going to read a source book for a world you're going to play in that's a very valuable set of time first of all it's fun to read it lets you escape to another world for a while when you think about fizzband's treasury dragons and we read about the the draconic lore that's in there we internalize that we can use that in our games right so that that that's a trick that doesn't feel like reading a book doesn't feel lazy but it it actually is because it's material that we can use later. I read the Margrave book years ago. Like it was two or three years ago when that book came out. And I read it then because I was running a campaign in it. But now I got to just pull some material from that and drop it into the game I was running. So yeah, I, I, I do think that pouring into details. And you say, I love to get into details. Good. If you love it, great. Like the details of the fun bar. Who are the gods? What's the history? All, the, all those things. The key is that you're focusing down on the details that the characters are going to see. You're not spending a lot of time fleshing out details that they're not going to run into. So I think that's the lazy trick is, you know, keeping that focus on what are the characters going to see, pile it up in secrets and clues, use published material. I think that's a really, a really good way to go. That is, I think we are out of time for the Lazy DM show today. I want to, th- or Lazy D&D talk show today. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me on this Sunday morning, talking about all things D&D. If you're here on Twitch, stick around. We're going to jump right into the Lazy DM prep in which we are prepping for my Rhyme of the Frost mating game. Very excited for that. So I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, thanks to the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you enjoyed this video and, and you wanted to help me out, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can support me directly on Patreon. You can subscribe to my videos on YouTube or you can pick up any of my books. Thank you all very much and have a great day.